Amen. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 1. I'll read verses 1 through 6, but we will be focusing this morning on just verses 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory is uh, as the builder has of a house, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would be active and give me the correct posture, correct heart, that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. And I pray that those who are in this room, who are listening, pray that you would give them Strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I pray that you would do so for Jesus' sake. Amen. So anyone and everyone should have a little bit of trepidation in their heart when the preacher is going to cover a text that says or starts with, therefore. Because it provides an opportunity to review everything that's been said prior. Because that word functions as a building block. right? It's a transition statement. So the author has given us chapters 1 and 2, and then he says, therefore. And then he moves on. So if we are going to appreciate the sense in which he says what he says next, we have to hold in our minds at least what he has said up to this point. And it's been three weeks, essentially, since we've covered the verses of chapter 2. We spent uh, one sermon exclusively on one word, just because it was important to take an aside on that. And then we were gone. We heard from Acts, and now we're back into the verse-by-verse for Hebrews. So he's at least drawing on everything he said in chapter 2. And we've come a long way. And this is his way of telling us that you need to do a mental recap or take it all together or hold it together in your mind. What the author has done for us up to this point is give us a glimpse of the glories of Christ. And and particularly as it relates to his work on our behalf. Right. So it, ha- it relates to him being the founder or, as I said, our champion, the champion of our salvation. The fact that he tasted death for everyone, defeating the one who had the power of death, the enemy, rising victorious, taking us as his reward and liberating us from the enemy, bringing us to glory, making us to share in his sonship, making us sons and daughters of God. These aren't things that you wake up in the morning thinking about. 
Anyone? I mean, unless it's a dream, then you, you've just had a profound experience of some kind, and maybe you're clinging to the Lord, maybe you're, you're resting in His promises because something's really difficult is happening, and you wake up in the middle of the night in a panic, and the first thing that comes to your mind because the Spirit is there helping you is you're a child of God. Like, those are moments when it comes to our minds very quickly. But for the most part, when we wake up, it's ouch, right? If you're an adult, right, you get what I'm talking about, right? Or if you're a kid, it's how can I torment my parents, right? Um, at least that's what it seems like they're thinking. So you have to work, you have to be disciplined, you have to have energy, you have to have the help of the Spirit even to keep your mind in this world that I've been describing here. What Jesus has done on your behalf in the Bible's terms, right? Not just the, not just the watered down little bitty version that we can give to those who don't understand sometimes. Uh, God loves you, has a great plan for your life. Like to, to get into the Bible's terms of what Jesus has done for you and how he has done it and how costly it was for him to do it, that takes work. You, know, you, you have to pause and reflect on each of these things that I just said. Jesus fighting on our behalf, being our champion, redeeming us, giving us sonship. You have to pause and reflect on each of those words because they're so jam-packed with meaning. And we won't do it today. If you missed each of the sermons on those different points, you can go listen to them. But before we get into the meat of these first two verses, you need to understand that this is God on a cosmic scale. And you need to appreciate Him as such. This is not an earthbound theology. He's even brought angels into the mix many times. This is where you live, believer. There's angels, there's the enemy, the dark-robed Lord of the dead who had the power of death over you through sin. Like th This is your reality. It's more real than all the different things we deal with. The, the chores, the bosses, the deadlines, all that. What, what I've just described, that world of cosmic conflict is more real than that. And the prayer of Paul, the prayer of myself, is that our eyes would be opened so that we would see that more regularly in our lives. And we have to be very careful on this point. Because as Christians, you can give off the idea that Christianity is mainly about what some call faith or just believing or all these spiritual realities that you can't see, can't touch, can't feel. And they're just off in heaven somewhere, somewhere. They're just ethereal above the earth. And that, that's where that's where our faith and our religion rests. And then the real world is down here and what we deal with. The claims of Christianity primarily are historical claims. Say that again. The claims of Christianity, the biggest claims of Christianity, are historical claims. And history may bore a lot of you. Anyone ever just super excited to go to history class? Yeah, that's a few of us, like, you know, 20%. For the rest of us, it's like, I don't enjoy this. I, I loved history, and I don't know if you've been able to pick up on that, but I did enjoy history, I had to get to college before I could really appreciate it. But all that to say, the claims of Christianity are this actually happened. 
They're factual claims. There is no weight or significance to the claims of Christianity unless they actually happened at a time and place somewhere in human history. It's not just about blind mental assent or belief in things that you can't see. It's not just the inner life where you just experience God in a horizontal way, you and God, you know, going through life. It's not just a personal relationship. It is that we have a very firm stance and a very committed belief in what has actually happened in the world. The stuff of our religion is real, it's grand, it's sweeping. They're historical claims and also a confident and bold and sure assertion about what is going to happen. And this is where many Christians kind of stop. They may have a good appreciation of the historical claims of Christianity and they have the spiritual aspects of it as well, but we don't speak because we can look like crazy people to the world about what is going to happen. And we believe, those of you who trust in Christ, that Christ's words are true and He speaks a lot about what's going to happen. And sometimes you can feel heart embarrassment just before some, if you just read what Jesus said about what's going to happen, it can feel embarrassing in the secular world because it sounds crazy sometimes. He's going to return and everyone will be raised and those who have done evil will go to judgment and those who have done good, who are in Christ, will go to eternal life. This is grand, cosmic claims, all-encompassing claims. It explains all of human history. It's not just some little corner of the universe. Christianity is built on claims about where we have come from, why we got here, and where we're going. On top of that sad story, because it is a sad story, the gospel intervenes. The gospel intervenes and offers a rock of refuge from the wrath of God that is coming. Because the death of Jesus made propitiation for our sins. The de- His death, Jesus' death, moved God from having just, just and holy wrath towards us because of the debt of sin that we had. He moved God to having an overflowing love towards us. His love triumphed over wrath and taking us into eternity with Him to unfold to us His goodness. And now our life is hidden with Christ in God. If you believe this, if you hold to this view of the world, and it's not just something inside your heart, but it's the very meaning of your life, the very thing that gives you the reason to wake up in the morning, then you might, as I've already said, be thought of by the world as a crazy person. But that's okay. The world hated me, it will hate you. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. Paul even says that we are the stench of death to those who do not know God. Maybe one of the reasons we see less persecution here in the U.S., and I say this because we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. There's been a lot of recent persecution 
Maybe one of the reasons we see less persecution here in the U.S. is not just that we have better laws. We do have better laws than most countries when it comes to freedom of religion. It's not just that we have better laws that protect us and our brothers and sisters, but that our collective lifestyle is not a constant affront to the culture. Maybe we've been so clever as to make ourselves not stench as much. Maybe we've arranged our lives so that we aren't so foolish looking. Maybe 95% of our lives overlays perfectly with the secular world in our nation. And it's not offensive anymore to just be a Christian. And it's, it's all kind of muddled now. For the most part, we just look the same. And it should not be so. And I'm not saying I have all the answers of how we should live differently but I am saying that a great number of things would be different. We do things differently in the kingdom. So hopefully, all that I've said up to this point, this is all under the word therefore, right? This is to try and bring back to your mind everything that we've talked about, just the grand and glorious things that we've covered, at least in chapter 2. And going back to chapter 1, the first verses, where it talks about Jesus in this magnificently exalted way. That's what needs to be in your mind. That's the world you need to see and exist in right now before we get to these next few words. It is from that place, from that mental capacity that he wants you to have that he goes further and he turns our attention to a few phrases here. Therefore, holy brothers... So it's not just that we live in an enchanted world. It's not just that these grand realities of creation, curse and sin and redemption and judgment and resurrection and eternity are real. It's that you, brothers and sisters, have been set apart for this very thing. The word holy draws on this idea of being set apart, taken out of the rest for a special purpose. The word carries both a moral and, I'm going to give you a big word today, okay, teleological component, or the end goal, right? It's not, holiness carries both ideas. It's not just how we act and live and think and do, but it's also about where we're going and what we're for. If you're set aside, you're already different, but you're set aside for some reason. That's the teleology of a thing, okay? So love that word, carry that word, use it to win an argument, all right? So first, the moral component, how we live, how we act, the things we say, the things we think. The author calls you holy brothers. What's important here, there, there's, there's, there's a very quick error that can be made here. The author has not yet gotten to the point where he talks about all the expectations that come with being a Christian regarding your life. He gets to that, and there are a lot of them. But here is meaning something a little bit different. He's, he's certainly tipping his hand that he plans to tell us all of the things that this great gospel means of how you ought to live your life. But it's not only 
about this idea of do's and don'ts. Jesus didn't just come to make us holy in the sense of giving us a new law. Right? You couldn't keep the first one. All right, here's a new set of rules for you. Right? That's not how Jesus makes us holy. It's one of the ways that he shows us the path of holiness, but that's not how he makes us holy. What he's referring here to is the fact that Jesus' work for you on the cross has made you holy. That is something that He has done in setting you apart. The call for holiness is less about following the rules and more about be who you are. Let me say that again. Holiness is less about follow the rules, the do's and don'ts, and more about be who you are. In Christ. And where I'll go to show this is Hebrews 10. If you want to turn over there, you can. If not, I'll just read it. Hebrews 10. Verses 8 through 14. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, this one coming to do the will of God, we have been sanctified, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you're paying attention to the wording here, what's actually going on in this text, it means that before you were born, before there was a United States of America, before humans had most likely even discovered this continent, at least in any what we call civilized sense, while the Roman Empire was still around, when Jesus died on that day, for those of you who are in him, he has perfected you. He made you holy on that day. So you look at your life, look at the things you do, the things you don't do that you know you should do, the things you do you know you shouldn't do. You can navel gaze as a Christian and get oh so depressed. Because what is your life? What is my life? What is our record of faithfulness compared to what God requires? And this text should be a warm blanket to your soul in those dark moments. He has for all time by a single sacrifice perfected those who are being sanctified. Two passages from Paul where we'll try to get a little more clarity as to what this means for us. 2 Corinthians 5. 
2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse is jam-packed. Listen to it again. For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in Him, in Jesus, we, those who believe, might become the righteousness of God. This is what C.S. Lewis called the great exchange. God takes Jesus' righteousness or God's very own righteousness lived out in Jesus and takes it and places it on us while He takes our sin and makes Jesus to be sin in our place. That's what happened on that day on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1. First Corinthians one, verse twenty-eight. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord did you catch it Jesus is your righteousness not your good deeds not how well you follow the new law in Christ what the apostles call the law of Christ the royal law Not how well you even keep all these ideas together in your mind. Jesus is your righteousness. So that's the moral component. That's what he's calling you. He's calling you holy brothers. This isn't something you bring to the table. The author doesn't look at his audience and say, wow, they've, they've really got it together. They're really obeying all these laws. I mean, they're at risk of abandoning the faith. That's why he's writing this letter. And he says to them, holy brothers you're covered with the righteousness of Christ that's the moral component here the end goal or the teleology of this word is also that it's not just that we're covered with the righteousness of Christ that now we radiate with Christ's righteousness in the eyes of God instead of our good deeds and bad deeds We're set aside for something. This is going somewhere. You don't just get the righteousness of Christ because God felt like, well, I I guess I should send my son to die and I'll just cover these people who believe in him with my righteousness and that'll that'll be fine. We're covered with the righteousness of Christ so that something else can happen. True Christianity would not be offensive if the essence of our message were not that all human history and every human everywhere is headed towards something. If it's just about today and how you live 
and the do's and don'ts. There are a million different ways of viewing religion out there, a million different ways of viewing God, thousands of organized religions, and all of them have rules. Even if the ones that reject rules say that you have to reject rules. That's a rule. Okay? Relativism is a law to itself. But Christianity tends to be the most offensive, even in a world where we have radical Islam. Because what we say is that Jesus is exclusive. And if you're not aligned with him, if you're not covered with his righteousness, not just about how well you keep the law or don't keep the law, but it's completely out of your hands. You cannot earn entrance to the kingdom. That's what's offensive about our message. This is headed somewhere. You're covered with the righteousness of Christ because by no other name given under heaven can you be saved. Every other religion says, well, here's how you do it. Here's step one. Here's step two. Here's the rules you follow. Here's how you get it nailed down. And here's how you live a life that's acceptable to God. And he'll weigh your life in the balance in some sense and you'll be welcomed in. That's not offensive to human nature. Because we can do it. We can get our act together. And those who can get their act together enjoy it because they look at those who can't and say, you couldn't get your act together. The message of the gospel is no one can get their act together. So to enter the kingdom, to have peace with God, you have to be covered with the righteousness of Christ, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from someone else, from outside. So when he calls you holy brothers, this is what you need to feel. This adds wood to the fire that hopefully you already have in your minds if you remember everything we covered in chapters 1 and 2. This is kind of piling on. He calls you holy brothers. Set apart for God's purposes. Given the righteousness of Christ so that you would be His people. I wrote out four different passages to support this, but we need to move a little bit more quickly. I'll just use the one from Hebrews. Hebrews 10. I'm sorry, Hebrews 8, verse 10. What has he set us apart for? Why has he given us his righteousness? Is it just so that we would escape judgment? Is it just so that we would enjoy his blessing forever and not experience hell? Hebrews 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they will be my people. That's repeated at least 17 times in the Bible. This idea that God is setting us apart, covering us with the righteousness of Christ, even writing the new law on our hearts so that we do walk in obedience to Him, so that, it's all leading somewhere, so that we would be His people and He would be our God. That relationship of a God with His people is the end goal. That's why Jesus came. Holy brothers, this is what you have been set apart for. To be God's people forever. Do you carry with you the emotional and mental gratitude, 
perspective? Does that, does that invade your minds on a daily basis? I have been set apart from eternity past when Jesus wrote my name in the Lamb's book of life for this very thing, to be the people of God forever. That transforms an earthly life. That elevates your earthbound experience to something much higher, much grander, and it transforms your perspective about your experiences. And then he intensifies it even further. You who share in a heavenly calling. This phrase intensifies what we've already been saying. What is this heavenly calling? As I've already said, to be the people of God. Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter one, beginning in verse three. I'll try to read quickly. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through him, through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfaithful, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He uses this phrase, this heavenly calling, sharing in the divine nature. These are terms that, like, like if, if I were to say the number 100 billion, that's almost untangible to our minds. We can't encompass that number with our minds. So when I say this heavenly calling, sharing in the divine nature, it's somewhat similar. How can you even quantify or explain in a way that a human can grasp what it means to share in the divine nature? That is your calling, though. This may offend some of you, but the overwhelming majority of the times the Bible uses the word call or calling in this sense is not about your own personal ministry. We tend to think that our calling is something that's individualized. Something that you 
kind of got to find. It's your journey. It's your story. It's you kind of feeling out where the Lord wants you, what he wants you to do. For every one of you who have trusted in Christ, I can tell you with resounding biblical support and clarity based on these passages and many others. If you were to ask me the question, what is the calling of God on my life? It's to be the people of God. It's to be holy and be set apart for Him. To be a Christian. To be a faithful husband, wife, brother, sister, mother, or father. To love and prepare for the bridegroom's appearing. Together, we share in this calling. It's ours together. And it is the failure of churches, theologians, and pastors everywhere that when I say those phrases... When I explain what your calling from God is, for the majority of us, that does not feel like enough. It doesn't provide enough clarity to fill in the gaps for what our lives should look like as a result. But I'm just not sure what God wants me to do with my life. That's an actual sentence that Christians can say, and I've said it. Till someone who understood this theology, pointed me in the right direction. Well, you know what the Bible usually means when it's talking about calling. It's your calling to be holy. So focus on being holy, Joshua. What does God want you to do? If your calling is to be holy, if your calling is to be the people of God, set us apart for all eternity then the things that help you do that is what he wants you to do. The things that help your brothers and sister prepare for that day. The things that help us as a church be a more faithful witness to the world so that we can invite others in. We share in this together. The most significant calling on your life is something that is exactly the same as your brothers and sisters sitting in this room and all around the world. That's the calling of God on your life. The whole point of the author mentioning these two phrases, holy brothers who share in this heavenly calling is to intensify our focus and to remind us under this word, therefore, of everything he's already said. He's building up to something. He says, consider Jesus. So after all that we've said about the author reminding us of the glorious nature of what he has done, what he's unfolded in the previous two chapters, we come to this statement. Consider Jesus. Everything I've been saying up to this point in this message has been trying to build up the intensity in your mind so that when I convey this idea, consider Jesus, it carries more weight. And it impacts or hits on your heart with more significance. 
You, you who have been made holy by his sacrifice, you who have been set apart by him and for him to be with him in the coming ages, you who share with each other in this heavenly calling, you consider Jesus. It's an imperative. It's a command. Consider Jesus. Set your mind on him. In the, in the following statements, the author gives us at least four ways he wants us to consider Jesus. But before we get to those, which we'll have to cover quickly, just consider him. Ponder him. In light of everything we've said for the last month or two, as we've covered these passages and as we've revisited them this morning, these grand ideas, these glorious ideas, set your minds on Jesus. Fill your mind with thoughts of him. Set your mind on him to behold him. It's a daily discipline. It's not just faith and something you feel in your emotions. A measure of how difficult this is to set your minds on crisis. How, how long is it when you pray? Let's say you're praying in your mind without using words. How long is it until you're distracted and you're thinking about something completely different? 15 seconds? 30? 45 seconds? You're doing really well if you get to 45 seconds, right? Consider Jesus. This is why Paul prays earnestly that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's difficult and it takes discipline and it takes each other. This is something we share in. Consider Jesus. He calls him, these next few words, the apostle and high priest of our confession. In Greek, these words actually come before he says the phrase, consider Jesus. Here's a way to translate this verse. Therefore, you who are members of a holy brotherhood, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Consider Jesus. These words, apostle and high priest, refer back to what he said again. We won't revisit it again. But this word apostle is new. He calls Jesus the apostle of our confession. We won't spend a ton of time explaining this, but everyone he's writing to, for the most part, at least by his own words, had not heard firsthand the gospel message. And maybe some of them in his congregation had heard it directly from Paul, maybe heard it directly from Peter. And maybe some people in that congregation felt that they had a better spiritual resume than other people. My spiritual experience is better. I, I actually served with Paul for, for a whole year. I, I went around in his ministry team and helped people. And, and how cool is that? And, and that's great. My experience of coming into Christianity is really cool. I got to meet all these cool people. I went to this conference, got this guy to sign my Bible, all this stuff. Your spiritual resume may be really cool. But Jesus is the great apostle. And every Christian from the most immature among us, the baby Christians to the Christians who have been in it for longer than I've been alive, Jesus is your apostle. He's the one sent from God with the message from God. And if you know him, you don't need a fancy spiritual resume. Consider him. 
Consider this one who is your high priest. Who's also the apostle for you. He was also faithful to him who appointed him. This next phrase. So we had the two ways, high priest, apostle, the one who was faithful to him who appointed him. This shows the God-centeredness of Jesus. I've not come to do my will, but to do your will. Not my will be done, but your will, Father. His main goal was to please the Father. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. This is the way that the author wants us to consider Jesus. Mainly, his faithfulness to God, his total faithfulness, his pure faithfulness on our behalf. And it goes back to this idea of righteousness being given to us. Jesus's life, his total faithfulness to God, his pure obedience, his uninterrupted obedience to God, his uninterrupted holiness, he perfectly obeyed the Father, that that is what counts for you, brother and sister. You're not just covered with the righteousness of a really good guy or a really good teacher or a really caring person. You're covered with the righteousness of the person who was totally, perfectly faithful to the one who appointed him. Martin Luther said, when I look at myself, I cannot see how I could be saved. But when I look at Christ, I cannot see how I could be lost. When you read the Gospels, and I would encourage you to do so frequently. When you read the Gospels and you see how Jesus perfectly obeyed God and was perfectly faithful to God, that righteousness, that blazing center of holiness and faithfulness, that's what God sees when He looks at you if you are in Christ. Consider Him the one who is faithful to God for you. And then He says this and. If we're not careful, we can think that he's switching gears, but I don't think he is. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. In the next verses, he's going to talk about how Jesus is greater than Moses. But for now, this phrase, he's talking about some sort of sameness with Moses. Because he says he was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So what is he doing? What, how is he intensifying our appreciation for Jesus? How is he helping us or adding logs to the fire for, to help us consider Jesus? And to see this, we need to go to Deuteronomy 18. We're almost done. And that doesn't mean we're 30 minutes from being done. Deuteronomy 18. Verses 15 through 19. This is Moses speaking to Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, Sinai, on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you 
speaking to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. It's this expectation of a prophet coming in the likeness of Moses that the Jews send out their spies, essentially, to John the Baptist and ask them, are you the prophet? Even in Jesus' day, they had had Isaiah, they had had Ezekiel, they had had Jeremiah, and I could list all their names. They had all the prophets, and they knew that not yet one had come like Moses again. There was an expectation for all the Jews that one day the prophet is coming. The one who's like Moses. And that in and of itself shows us that he's greater than Moses because if Moses had a finality to him, if the law that Moses gave was final, there wouldn't be need for a second one to come like Moses. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, so now this new one comes. Jesus, who is faithful to God, the one who appointed him, who has set you apart for this heavenly calling he's made you holy he's covered you with the righteousness of Christ his very own righteousness consider him this final prophet the one like Moses who even outstrips Moses in glory so what does all this mean where you know consider Jesus this is where I really want to leave you There's not a whole lot that can be said in terms of application because the application flows immediately out of a heart that considers Jesus. This is what Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 40. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The effect on sin is great when you behold Jesus, when you consider Jesus. You cannot be actively participating in sin, actively disobeying the commandments of the Lord, and at the same time be beholding His glory. You cannot do it. So when I say consider Jesus, it has infinite application in your life. How can you mistreat your children, be uncaring towards your spouse, cheat your boss when you're considering the glory and beauty of Jesus. You can't do it. Consider Jesus, this great apostle. He's also the high priest. He's also the prophet like Moses. He's the one who gives you this great heavenly calling. He's the one who's faithful to God, perfectly faithful to God for you. And he's the one who makes you holy. So there's really not a go and do likewise to this. It's just sit in it and consider him. Let's pray. Father, we are weak and our minds are distracted and there are 10,000 things waiting for our attention and the flesh is weak 
as well. But give us strength by your Spirit. Embolden us. Change our minds. Remove things from our minds and from our lives that distract us, the weights that so easily beset us. Help us consider Jesus. And that as we consider Him, as we set our minds on Him, as we work with diligence and discipline to set our minds on Him and to behold His glory, I pray that it would, as you have promised, change us from one degree of glory to another. Pray these things in His name. Amen.